Trigger warning. Sensitive mental health topics including drug abuse, self-harm, suicide, and hospitalization. Marilyn is dead. He told me that Bobby Kennedy had broken off the affair with Marilyn and that she was hysterical and calling the White House and the Justice Department and Hyannisport, insisting that Bobby get in touch with her, and that the Department of Justice had called Bobby in San Francisco and told him, You'd better get your ass down to L.A. because she's out of control. The Kennedys started visiting Los Angeles for a very particular reason, beginning in the 1950s. Happy birthday to you. Find out where Bobby Kennedy was that weekend. What really has me scared is all the strange clicks I've been hearing on my phone lately. Miss Marilyn Monroe. It's hard to know where to start if you don't start with the truth. Marilyn Monroe. Welcome to Blood and Business. I'm Bethany. And I'm Cassie. Today we're telling a story of siblings born and bred to run the world. They were the most infamous family of the 20th century. Their story drips with conspiracy. Their names whispered through the decades since they left their voices echoing in time and space. Their hands helped mold the America we know, sharing with their country dreams of landing on the moon Freedom for every man. And by example, they inspired generations to reach the highest heights. They played with fire, and only a few survived. Their words ring through our history books, their pretty faces on our television screens, and their signature will forever be stamped on our national identity. They stood in the trenches. We stood beside them. They flashed their diamonds. We flashed our cameras. They had their fun, and we saluted them. They were good. They were evil. They were human. They are the Kennedy siblings. JFK was elected president in late 1960 and took over office in 61. According to those close to Marilyn... The Kennedy brothers were present in her life for years before JFK was elected president. It's difficult to determine when Frank and Marilyn first met. J. Randy Terraborelli. Joey Bishop, the Rat Pack member, recalls Marilyn walking into the middle of Frank Sinatra's show in New York at the Copacabana, quote, sometime in the 50s. Allegedly, the show was sold out. But Marilyn told her friends, So, what does that have to do with me? Of course we can get in. And she was right. The club brought out a table from the back and stuck it in the empty space right in front of the stage. Frank gave her a wink and a smile and kept right on singing. The two became fast friends. Both were mourning the loss of their previous marriage. Marilyn's to Joe DiMaggio, Frank's to Ava Gardner. They kept each other company. And Marilyn ended up moving in with Frank. Frank and Marilyn, platonic friends living together. <laughs> the behind the scenes stories about that will be read aloud verbatim in our KFM. But even before Frank, the Hollywood networker and web weaver, knew Marilyn, she had another Hollywood friend by the name. Peter. Peter Lawford. Peter understood Marilyn. They both had lived through traumatic and abusive childhoods and were robbed of a sufficient education, but they both had innate intelligence. Around 1951, they either met in Peter's management office or at the gym, depending on who you ask. (laughs) Pat, not Kennedy, Seton Lawford, Peter's last wife, said this. 
Marilyn also believed in physical fitness. She ran for her health and her looks long before that was popular. She followed a fitness routine that brought her into contact with the athletic Peter. He was intrigued by her, sensitive to the pain she often hid, and asked her for a date. Peter Lawford dated Marilyn Monroe. Just when you think, okay, this must be everything. How do we not know this stuff? How, How do we not, not know this stuff? And I thought that Marilyn Monroe would have been way out of Peter's league. <laughs> Same. <laughs> but what actually happened is quite the opposite. Although they remained friends throughout her life, the dating aspect did not even last the first evening. In fact, Peter was so uncomfortable in Marilyn's home that he ended their date halfway through the evening. The fascinating story about why will also be told in the KFM. Many of the upcoming details are according to Marilyn's friends and those close to her in her final season of life. They were interviewed by a British journalist investigating her death and featured in the Netflix documentary by archival researcher Peter Scott and author Anthony Summers. The Mystery of Marilyn, The Unheard Tapes. Anthony Summers wrote the 1980s book Goddess, and while researching for it, collected over 650 tape recordings and 1,000 interviews on the subject of Marilyn Monroe. One of these witnesses being Arthur James who was a property developer and friend of Marilyn's. Hildy and Joan Greenson were also interviewed. They are the wife and daughter of Dr. Ralph Greenson, Marilyn's psychiatrist. And then lastly, Gloria Romanoff. She was a friend of Marilyn's and the owner of Romanoff's restaurant. It was the spot that all of the film industry's big shots and all the pretty girls hung out at back in Hollywood's golden age. Lauren Bacall, Grace Kelly, Lucy and Desi Arnaz, Humphrey Bogart, Sophia Loren, and of course, Marilyn frequented. This is also the restaurant that a certain Frank Sinatra stormed out of on New Year's screaming, Happy New Year's, my ass! (laughs) This is a story from Joan Greenson. Quote, Well, Marilyn told me that there was a new man in her life, that he was just, you know, really terrific. And he was really neat, you know, cute. It was girly talk. She said that this person was so important that she wouldn't tell me who it was. Calling him the general. The general? Okay, whoa, 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 pause. The general. She said the general, as in the attorney general, as in Bobby? I thought this was about Jack. (laughs) Same. No words. (laughs) What's going on? The confusion will get thicker and thicker. Just hang on to your seatbelts. And what is even more chilling is that the people in the Justice Department would not call the Attorney General, Attorney General, but only the General. It's Bobby. I have full body chills. (laughs) I'm throwing up. Literally going to pass out. You're going to get more and more confused, okay? Buckle up. Then Joan goes on. I remember feeling that it was real peculiar that here I'm sitting with Marilyn Monroe. We're talking about boyfriends and I'm meeting some schlub at art school. And I know she's talking about somebody that's very big in the government. And it sort of struck me as bizarre. I didn't know whether it was Bobby or the president. I mean, I don't even remember the guy I had a crush on back then. But it certainly was somebody that wasn't going to hold a candle to that. Then the interviewer asks, In 61, in her last year and months. And Joan replies, Yeah. Find out where Bobby Kennedy was that weekend. But let's begin at the beginning, shall we? Jack, that started in the early and mid-50s, James said. Gloria Romanoff's answer to when she first heard any information between Marilyn and the Kennedys, quote, He'd been out here on and off all through the 50s, because he had a lot of friends here, you know? Spending lots of time. When Jack first started visiting L.A. and people started seeing him around a lot, he was just a, quote, Smart-ass rich kid's son become senator, James noted. No one expected him to become president. 
allegedly, he and Marilyn would stay at the Malibu cottage and they were able to get away with it because nobody knew who John F. Kennedy was. He was just a Massachusetts senator. The people in California had no reason to know who he was. Interviewer to Arthur James. When did the Bobby thing start? James. After Jack. The meeting place was at Peter Lawford's house in Malibu. According to actress Jean Martin, yes, that is Dean Martin's wife, (laughs) the goings-on at the Lawford Santa Monica home were, quote, not discreet at all. Of course, there was nothing discreet about the Kennedys either. True. She was asked if Marilyn was there with either of the brothers, and she immediately replied, "Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was just mind-boggling. Then she goes on. Peter would obviously be, you know, sort of pimping for both Kennedys. They would just as soon do it in front of anybody. Their wives were often in the other room. She alluded that Jack even grabbed her breasts once. She was then asked if Bobby was a grabber as well. And she said, Yeah. Not in the same way that Jack was, but they were all tacky. Quote, They were chips off the old block. Get laid as often as you want with as many women as you want. Pat, not Kennedy, Seton Lawford said, quote, Peter admitted to myself and others that he obtained women for Kennedy, a duty he felt someone had to fulfill. Peter was in a position to arrange for meetings where Kennedy would have privacy with a woman. If the woman was in show business, such as Marilyn Monroe, it was easy for Peter to travel with her or to be seen with her. Two actors out together implied business, especially if there was no hint of an intimate relationship. Thus, Peter could obtain the women, help them enter either his own home or some other rendezvous location, then discreetly step aside when Kennedy arrived. So as I've said, it's a bit confusing because there's all these rumors about Jack having an affair with Marilyn, and that's the story that I heard my entire life. Mm-hmm. There are endless assumptions about what went on between JFK and Marilyn Monroe. I mean, she got up in front of the nation and sang happy birthday in a very seductive way. (laughs) But then there are these people who were super close to Marilyn that say that it was Bobby. So which one was it? Well, Jean Martin was asked that very question. Was there a Bobby thing? Or a Jack thing. Do you know what she said? Both. This is confirmed by the White House call logs. <sighs> there are too many recorded calls between Marilyn and the president for it to just have been a casual acquaintance or even a friendship. Bobby's secretary suggests the same. Summers. And the Bobby thing that lasted well into the presidency. Quote. Oh, yes. That's what she said on multiple occasions. Arthur James. In the summer of 1954, Peter got Jack and Jackie an invitation to a party at the home of Charles Feldman. Peter knew that Marilyn would be there with her then husband of six months, former New York Yankees baseball great, Joe DiMaggio. Marilyn allegedly told a friend, Bob Slatzer, that she felt uncomfortable at the party because Jack Kennedy stared at her the entire evening. I may be flattering myself, she said, giggling, but he couldn't take his eyes off me. Feldman, the host, remembered that he noticed that Jackie saw too and was angry and that DiMaggio grabbed Marilyn's arm several times throughout the night, saying, Let's go. I've had enough of this. Marilyn reportedly did not want to leave. The consistent story between Marilyn's friends is that Jack and Marilyn began meeting in New York throughout the 1950s, and when she and her second husband, the playwright Arthur Miller, started having problems, she would drive into Manhattan from their Connecticut farmhouse and stay at her East 57th Street apartment. Or, if Jack was in town, she would meet him 
in the Kennedy Suite at the Carlisle Hotel. In January 1961, two things happened. One, Marilyn and Arthur Miller got a divorce. And you know what else happened? John Fitzgerald Kennedy was inducted as the 35th president of the United States of America. Bloody FM presents Hometown Ghost Stories, a paranormal podcast that investigates a new town every week, bringing you all the hauntings, from haunted houses to castles, bridges to asylums, wandering spirits to demons. Over 100 episodes covering different towns all over the world. Tune in to Hometown Ghost Stories live on YouTube every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern or on any podcast platform and find out if your hometown is haunted. Now, we have quite a bit of info on certain upcoming events because you may have heard the name Jimmy Hoffa. (laughs) Possibly. He was the head of a bunch of unions and Bobby was working to take him down and expose the corruption in unions. Yes. Yep. Hoffa hired a PI to build a case of dirt against the Kennedy brothers. He targeted their relations with Marilyn Monroe. So what does this private investigator do to get the dirt? He bugs two places. You can probably guess. Marilyn's house, (laughs) ding, and the Kennedy Playground. Peter Lawford's house in Santa Monica, ding. He put microphones in the light fixtures inside the telephones and what they picked up. They could recognize the voices, the Bostonian accents and Marilyn's breathy, childlike voice. So they already thought they knew who it was. And then... They picked up moments of Jack calling Marilyn, Marilyn, and Marilyn calling JFK, Prez. And they very definitely were recorded doing the deed. Quote, So there were numerous tapes made of Marilyn with JFK making love. Jimmy Hoffa. Oh, that's just great. Here's a report from Bobby's personal secretary, Angie Novello, who would always answer his personal calls at the Justice Department. This is in 62, shortly before her death. It must have been that summer. Whenever she called, she would talk to me just as if she was reaching out, and Bob would call her back and they would talk. Jean Carmen was a regular Lawford Party attendee. She saw Marilyn and Jack Kennedy together lots of times. Quote, Peter introduced me to the president at the beach house. He was the go-between. I like that term better than pimp. It was so easy for Peter because he had that house and made it easy for everyone. I was always amazed, though, at anybody coming there, especially the president, because it wasn't a totally private house. There were houses right next door. Over time, Peter and Jack had slowly become more and more reckless with Marilyn. At first, she was included in a small group that would have dinner at the Lawford Beach House, and then Jack would take her back to his hotel at the end of the evening. But as Miss Jean Martin told us, they eventually got a little too gleeful and were not discreet at all. According to Vanity Fair, Peter once telephoned Marilyn to invite her to a party, and she asked who else would be there. Among the names he gave her, she recognized two high-priced call girls. She coldly declined the invitation. There are multiple witnesses that say that Marilyn brought a list of political questions to one of these evenings at Peter Lawford's house to discuss with Bobby. Because she felt she may not be smart enough for the company she was keeping, and she wanted to show that she was more than just the glamorous blonde hair and tips. Sad. There are also multiple reports that she and Bobby danced in the living room. And then on one occasion, Bobby called his dad, long distance, and told him that he was sitting with Marilyn and asked if Joe wanted to say hello to her. 
another Kennedy-Monroe occasion with too many eyewitnesses to ignore, occurred on Saturday, March 24th, 1962. Marilyn floated out of the bedroom of her Spanish-style home on 5th Helena Drive in Brentwood, Los Angeles, before 9 a.m. This was about three hours earlier than the usual. She told her housekeeper, Eunice Murray, I'm going on a trip. At noon, Peter Lawford arrived to pick her up. Quote, Peter paced back and forth, Miss Murray remembered, while Marilyn put the finishing touches on her attire. An hour later, Marilyn was ready and wearing a black wig. Fun fact, Marilyn Monroe was one of the first celebrities to ever disguise themselves out in public. Other than Elvis, she was probably the first who ever needed to. Peter was driving her to Palm Springs to spend the weekend with President Kennedy at Bing Crosby's house. I had not written this Maryland script when we did the Peter Lawford story and the Frank Sinatra stuff. Oh my gosh, worlds colliding and like everything is matching up. This is the trip where Frank takes a sledgehammer and busts up the helipad because JFK was supposed to stay at his house and then everything went down and Peter had to call him and call it off. Because Hoover was on Bobby and Bobby was like, you're done. And Frank got kicked out and then it was the ice. And then JFK ends up staying at Bing Crosby's instead. But then another person told the same, a different side of the same story. If you have not listened to our Mimi Mimi. KFMs, it's the red string. There's no denying. There's no denying what happened on that trip. There's just none. The Peter Lawford, Marilyn Monroe, Mimi Alford, Bing Crosby, Frank Sinatra. The connections are endless. It is wild. It's fact. It's confirmed. And if you've listened to the Mimi episodes, then you know that Mimi went with Jack, but did not spend that night with him because Philip Watson was there that night and remembers there being two parties, one at poolside and a smaller, more exclusive one in the president's cottage. And that is exactly what Mimi reported. Watson wasn't surprised that Marilyn was there with the president because he had actually seen them together at another party at the Beverly Hilton Hotel the previous November. Quote, What astonished him now was how little effort either made to disguise their intimacy. And this. Well, we all know about this one. The story goes that it was Peter's idea to have Marilyn Monroe sing happy birthday to Jack at his birthday party. Genius, Peter. Just genius. Marilyn asked her favorite designer, Jean-Louis, who was famous for the nearly naked gowns he had created for Marlena Dietrich. She's coming back. Will not go away. I mean, she is threaded throughout almost every episode. And she's the one that after Jack's up with her, he said, did you ever sleep with my father? And she said no. And he was like, I knew it. I knew he was lying. Anyway, Marilyn wanted a dress that would look like a, quote, second skin, kind of like the ones that this designer had made for Marlena Dietrich. The final dress cost $5,000 in 1962. I think it's still supposed to be the most expensive dress ever made. The happy birthday one? Uh-huh. Oh, my Maybe gosh. that's because of the event and then the resale. Yeah. <laughs> it's not just a dress. It's an iconic moment in American history. <clears throat> the dress also had to be sewn on Marilyn's body. Mickey Song, who had cut Jack and Bobby's hair for the occasion, begged Bobby to let him have a shot at Marilyn's hair. Quote, She didn't want me to work on her because she didn't know me, but Bobby convinced her. Song created the iconic flip curl on Marilyn's right side. That is one of the most iconic Mm -hmm. hairstyles ever. Props to you, Song. Quote, While I was working on Marilyn, he recalled, she was extremely nervous and uptight. 
the door was open, and Bobby Kennedy was pacing back and forth outside. Finally, he came into the dressing room and said to me, Would you step out for a minute? When I did, he closed the door behind him and stayed in there for about 15 minutes. Then he left, and I went back in. Marilyn was all disheveled. She giggled and said, Could you help me get myself back together? The president sat near Bobby and Ethel because Jackie knew about Marilyn's performance and refused to attend. She could be found wherever she wanted to be. She spent that day horseback riding in Virginia. Peter had to introduce Marilyn several times on stage because, well, she was never ready. After a long pause, Peter continued again, hoping she would appear on stage. (laughs) Mr. President, because in the history of show business, perhaps there has been no one female who has meant so much, who has done more. Mr. President, the late Marilyn Monroe. She shuffled across the stage because her dress was so tight that she was only capable of micro steps and then emerged from the black thousands of beads shimmering in the spotlight and stood silently in front of the microphone for an uncomfortably long time. Then she breathed heavily. (sighs) The crowd went wild. (laughs) (laughs) After flicking the microphone with her finger to make sure it was working, she began to sing. We thank you so much. Everybody, happy birthday. (laughs) Jack took the stage afterward and in true JFK fashion exclaimed, I can now retire from politics after having happy birthday sung to me in such a sweet, wholesome way. (laughs) Literally, why? I hate that story. The, the, The story next episode, this story next episode. It's so sad. After the performance, Marilyn attended a private party in Kennedy's honor. Adlai Stevenson wrote a friend later that Marilyn was wearing, quote, skin and beads. I didn't see the beads. My encounters, however, were only after breaking through the strong defenses established by Robert Kennedy, who was dodging around her like a moth around a flame. Schlesinger later wrote, quote, Bobby and I engaged in mock competition for her. She was most agreeable to him and pleasant to me. But then she receded into her own glittering mist. There was something at once magical and desperate about her. Robert Kennedy, with his curiosity, his sympathy, his absolute directness of response to distress, in some way got through the glittering mist, as few did. After the party, Marilyn was reportedly whisked into the Carlisle Hotel to spend a few hours alone with the president. But Jack and Marilyn's perspectives of the relationship were not the same. Marilyn called. Jack did not answer. Marilyn wrote what Peter termed, quote, rather pathetic letters. She got nothing in return. The lack of closure triggered all the oceans of abandonment that Norma Jean had swirling inside her. From a past life, she worked tirelessly to forget. Now, she was Marilyn Monroe. So, she fawned. Jack still did not respond. Marilyn was becoming completely unraveled. Like with Frank Sinatra, when he needed to be removed from the Kennedy Circle, Peter was avoiding her too. Quote, I wonder where the hell Peter is. Marilyn asked her friend, Jean Carmen. I haven't been able to reach him for days. Peter would disappear on you when he didn't want to talk, Jean remembered. Finally, when her fawn survival instinct was not producing the desired response, she switched to fight. Marilyn threatened to expose the affair to the press. Jack responded. And when he needed other people or other countries to take him seriously, he sent Bobby. And when little brother was staring you in the face, 
Bobby flew to Los Angeles to talk to Marilyn. According to Peter's third wife, Deborah Gold, Peter told her that it wasn't until now Bobby's cease and desist message, not before the happy birthday performance, that he and Marilyn began their affair. Marilyn's psychiatrist's son, Daniel Greenson, who became a doctor himself, remembered going to see Marilyn that summer when his father was out of the country. Quote, This woman was desperate. She couldn't sleep, and she said how worthless she felt. She talked about being a waif, that she was ugly, that people were only nice to her for what they could get from her. She said life wasn't worth living anymore. A waif is a homeless, neglected, or abandoned person, especially a child a young person who is thin and looks unhealthy or uncared for, an abandoned infant. Milton Ebbins, Peter's manager, tried to fortify her. Come on, Marilyn, you know everybody loves you. She replied, Everybody doesn't love me. The only ones who love me are the guys who sit in the balcony and jerk off. By July 1962, Jack, Bobby, and Peter had become aware of the fact that both Peter's beach house and Marilyn's house were bugged. Marilyn's friend, Bob Slatzer, remembered lending an ear while Marilyn lamented all about what was going on between her and Bobby Kennedy. She wondered why he wouldn't return her phone calls. Slatzer told Marilyn to forget the whole thing, put the Kennedys behind her, and go on with her life. After an elongated pause, Marilyn said, You know something? What really has me scared is all these strange clicks and sounds I've been hearing on my phone lately. That's why I called you from a payphone. I don't know what to think. For more than two decades, Fred Otash refused to say whether or not he had bugged the Kennedys. Quote, I would have kept it quiet all my life but all of a sudden I'm looking at FBI and CIA files with quotes from my investigators telling them about the work they did on my behalf. It's stupid to sit here and deny that these things are true. Yes, we did have the place, Lawford's house, wired. Yes, I did hear a tape of Jack Kennedy, Monroe. But I don't want to get into the moans and groans of their relationship. They were having a sexual relationship, period. In addition to Otash bugging her for Hoffa, Marilyn had Hoover all over her too. There is a massive FBI file on Marilyn Monroe. Part of it, classified as SM-C, meaning security matter, communist. This was in the middle of the Cold War, when communist was one of, if not the, Dirtiest word in the English language. They had first opened the file when she was married to Arthur Miller, who was a communist. And later, she had been tracked visiting friends in Mexico who had actually been kicked out of the country for communist-related crimes. During the exact same time that Cuba's communist dictator, Fidel Castro, was urgently asking the Soviet Union to send him missiles to help him do Who knows what? Bobby, on the same trip, went to Nevada to witness a nuclear weapons test and reportedly saw Marilyn and discussed the nuclear matters with her. The friend that reports this conversation said that Marilyn was undeniably and unchangeably very, very leftist in her own opinions. This is all in her FBI file with this information credited to an unnamed source. She was the wrong woman for the Attorney General and the President of the United States to be on intimate terms with. The Kennedy boys were playing with fire, and they were about to be burned. So maybe they needed to do something about it. Maybe the Kennedys needed to do something about Marilyn. She was in contact with 
too many people who were in contact with Castro's people. She knew too much about the United States nuclear weapons situation that the Kennedys realized she could do a lot of harm by talking. And maybe they took care of it. So by this point, Fred Otash is bugging Marilyn's house. The FBI are bugging her house. And then Marilyn herself pulls a Peter Lawford, contacts Fred Otash, and asks for the electronic equipment to bug her own home. Quote, I have no idea why she wanted to do this, he said. Maybe she wanted to have something she could hang over Bobby's head. Wait, so Marilyn goes to Otash to have him bug her telephone for herself, but he's already, Otash is already bugging it for Hoffa? I don't know what the timeline is. I don't know if Otash was already bugging her house for Hoffa first and then she went to him to get the equipment to do the same thing to herself. I'm pretty sure. Or she asked him first and then he's like, hey, I got the hookup to Maryland's. I can bug her phone as well. I mean, who would ever know? But it seems like the whole Otash bugging the Kennedys for Hoffa and bugging Maryland's house was like the initial thing, okay. the initial bugging of Marilyn's house. But I don't, I mean, I'm assuming he did not tell her that. So he's just right. like, sure. sure, we already are doing we that, got it, but, but sure. you can have copies. <laughs> what we do know to help us with the timeline, remember the happy birthday hairstylist, Mickey Song? I do. He has his own story that props up the fact that Marilyn was bugging her own house and kind of gives us a tentative date on when that may have been happening. So in late July of 1962, Marilyn asks Song to come over. He assumed that she wanted him to style her hair. He's a hairdresser. (laughs) Makes sense. But when he got to her house, he was surprised to find out that no, she did not need her hair done. Instead of hairspray and a teasing brush, she wanted information. She immediately started grilling him about Jack and Bobby. She wanted to know where they had been, who they had been with, and specifically whether he had seen them with other women. Yes. First of all, they're both (laughs) Maybe they're wives. (laughs) Quote, I didn't want to get involved, and I remembered how Peter, Bobby, and Jack had tested me to see if I was a gossip. So I kept telling her, I don't know. I don't know. She told me that the Kennedys were using me just as they were using her. She tried to make us comrades against the Kennedys. I just said, I'm not being used. They're treating me great. A few weeks later, he was glad he hadn't spilled a word. I saw Bobby and he said to me, you're always defending the Kennedys, aren't you? That's good. I just thought he'd heard something about me from someone. But then he said, I heard a tape Marilyn made of you a couple weeks ago. I was stunned. I had no idea she was taping me. I guess she was trying to get something on them to keep them in line. At the time, I didn't really care about Marilyn and the Kennedys. Now, I think she was abused. They played with her and they tired of her. And I think they found her a lot of trouble to get off their hands. She wasn't going to go that easily. Allegedly, Bobby's first gentle attempts to end his relationship with Marilyn failed. Marilyn refused. He should face me and tell me why. Or tell me on the phone. I don't care. I just want to know why. She told a friend. Marilyn called Bobby repeatedly to get an explanation, and after numerous messages telling her to stop calling, he changed his private office telephone number, forcing her to place calls through the Justice Department switchboard. Her phone records show eight unanswered calls in a little over a month. So, Marilyn called Bobby at home for the first time. Norma Jean Baker died on August 4th, 1962. There has always been an accepted timeline for the events that occurred that evening, and the Kennedys' brothers' names have always been wrapped up in the record 
of that last day. Per the housekeeper, Marilyn went into her room around 8 p.m., closed the door, and the housekeeper went to bed. She woke up around 3 or 3.30 in the morning and went to check on Marilyn. The light was still on and the door was locked. Concerned, she called Marilyn's psychiatrist, Dr. Greenson, and he came over at that point and broke in through a window to her bedroom and found her dead. Oddly, they didn't call the police until 4.25 a.m. However, much more recently, Marilyn's public relations director, Arthur Jacobs' wife, tells a different story and gives a very different timeline. She says that she and her husband were at the Hollywood Bowl that night, and around 10.30 p.m., someone brought them the news that either Marilyn was gone or that something was very wrong with Marilyn. They rushed out of the Hollywood Bowl. She went home, and her husband went straight to Marilyn's house. So he would have been at her house around 11 p.m., and everyone would have already known that she was gone. This would have been hours and hours before 3 a.m. Mrs. Natalie Jacobs. My husband fudged everything off, and I can't tell you why, because he's no longer with us. Don't forget, that was his business, to keep the press at bay. He kept everyone in abeyance. Juliet Roswell, who was also on Maryland's PR team, corroborated the statement by Mrs. Jacobs in a separate account. Eunice Murray's son-in-law, Norman Jeffries, was doing renovation work on Maryland's home and recalled his shock at her appearance that Saturday morning. Quote, She looked sick, desperately sick, not only in the physical sense. And I thought there must be something terribly wrong. She must have taken a lot of dope or something. Maybe she was scared out of her mind. I had never seen her look that way before. Potentially the most shocking new discovery was that the ambulance attendant, Ken Hunter, and seven other ambulance employees say that Marilyn was alive when they took her to the hospital. That Dr. Greenson could not have found her dead. Eight witnesses? That's a lot. That's more people that say that she was still breathing than say that she wasn't. And then just when we think we're starting to get somewhere in uncovering the real story behind Marilyn's last day, there is known mystery and known acknowledged secrets between the people who were there that day. A few people have alluded that they know what it is. And several people claim that they just know that the story is not what actually happened but they don't really know what was hidden. When asked about the events of that weekend, Hilde Greenson, Marilyn's psychiatrist's wife, stated that those things just weren't talked about. Her daughter chimed in, people of that magnitude. Maybe she's just talking about Marilyn. Maybe she's referencing someone else too. Hilde shut down the conversation by adding that her husband wouldn't have wanted to burden her with, quote, a knowledge that I would then have to hide. And Danny Greenson, their son, simply said, quote, Yeah, I just don't feel comfortable telling you what he told me. Find out where Bobby Kennedy was that weekend. At least four people say that Bobby was in L.A., at Peter Lawford's house that weekend. And one of the sources say that they got that information from an FBI agent. Peter Lawford's neighbor, Ward Wood, is one of the sources. He stated that he saw Bobby in Los Angeles on Saturday afternoon. Sam Yordy, the mayor of Los Angeles at the time, said, quote, I do know that Bobby Kennedy was in town that day. He was staying at the Beverly Hilton Hotel. This was all told to me by the police chief, William Parker. He was very adamant that Kennedy was seen at the hotel the night of Marilyn's death. LAPD Chief of Detectives Thad Brown and Deputy DA John Dickey both told fellow police officers that they believed that Bobby was in Los Angeles that day. Frank Neal, 
a former employee of 20th Century Fox, later stated that Bobby arrived by helicopter at a landing pad near the studio lot Stage 18, which was often used by the Beverly Hilton Hotel for that purpose. A confidential police source supports this story. And, according to both Marilyn's former business partner, Milton Green, and Peter's third wife, Deborah Gold, Peter admitted to them that Bobby was in L.A. and that he went to see Marilyn. And then, remember those bugs that they put in at Marilyn's house and at the Lawford's home? There are tapes from the day she died. Bobby Kennedy called her, according to the people who have heard the tapes, the day she died. The calls came from Peter's house. Marilyn is heard talking to Bobby and saying things like, Stop bothering me. Leave me alone. Stay out of my life. I feel used. Passed around. I feel like a piece of meat. Fred Otash reports that it was, quote, a very violent argument that was recorded on those tapes that day. Surveillance expert Reed Wilson said that Bobby got Marilyn in a really bad place, mentally, that day. There are noted moral references for him that say they have never known Wilson to be a liar. He said, quote, Now that is true. She was raising a stink, calling the brother, calling John in the White House, and complaining about the situation. The picture that I remember is that she had been hot and heavy for Bob, at first. And then, she's gotten the cold shoulder, or somehow or other, it had turned. Now, the details of that, I don't know. But somehow or other, she had come to the point where she felt like she was just being used. And that's where it was at about the time the end came. She was upset, and I don't think she was heartbroken. It was a thing of feeling taken advantage of. A lot of lies. Had come to a place of, I don't even want to see you. Why did you come here, you know? If you want to see me, you come see me. I'm not coming down there. The call to the White House thing. I I understood it to mean that, like she was calling to say, you know, get your brother away from me. I hate all of you. That type of thing. There was a turning point in there, in her feelings. The Kennedys were a very important part of Marilyn's life. Allegedly, as per Marilyn's housekeeper Eunice Murray, Bobby Kennedy was there the afternoon of the night that she died. Quote, It became so sticky. The protectors of Robert Kennedy had to step in there and protect him. Many of whom reference Peter. Similar to Peter having to call off Frank Sinatra. Maybe he felt like he had failed last time and wanted to come through for the Kennedys this time. Harry Hall, a law enforcement informant, said that there was not really an investigation, but more of a hush-hush, because the man that was really involved was the boss. End quote. And who is the boss of all bosses? The president. He also specifically mentioned that everyone knew they didn't want Bobby's name involved because his brother was the president. According to Fred Otash and his surveillance, Peter Lawford showed up after Marilyn died, very disoriented and in shock, saying that Marilyn Monroe was dead. The story that floats in Marilyn's circle is that Bobby Kennedy was there. They had gotten into a big fight. They flew Bobby out of there in a helicopter and then onto a flight to San Francisco at around two or three in the morning. And then that someone else came in and cleaned her house of anything related to her involvement with the Kennedys. Diaries, notes, photos, everything. And now there is only one surviving photo of Marilyn with the Kennedys. Some say Fred cleaned the house. Some say FBI agents were there. And multiple sources say that Peter Lawford did the first pass. There are also reports that law enforcement or the FBI had seized recordings and photos from other sources and at least one photo lab after her death. The helicopter pilot's log 
shows this flight. Confirming, Marilyn's housekeepers witness that Bobby was there that day. FBI agent Jim Doyle confirmed that the confiscation of records for sure did happen and that it had to have been an order from someone higher than Hoover, the director of the FBI at the time. Quote, either the attorney general or the president. Marilyn's daily sessions with her psychiatrist did not hold a candle to her distress. She needed almost constant dialogue. She called Arthur James from various phone booths that day to complain that Bobby had, quote, cut me off cold. Marilyn was drunk and determined to talk to Bobby Kennedy. Quote, she had made her last call to the Justice Department on the previous Monday, July 30th, a call that lasted eight minutes, according to her phone records. Whether she spoke to Bobby or to his secretary, Angie Novello, is unknown, but she was clearly left unsatisfied. Marilyn found out that Bobby had a reservation at the St. Francis Hotel in San Francisco, along with his wife, Ethel, and four of his children. A reporter from the New York Daily News Florabelle Muir, attempted to recreate Marilyn's last days. And to get information, she paid an operator at the St. Francis. She was told that Marilyn had called Bobby several times during the day on Friday, August 3rd, and left messages. As far as the operator knew, the calls were not returned. Pat Newcomb, Marilyn's publicist, stayed the night at Marilyn's house and reported that she, a drunk and angry Marilyn, in the late night hours of August 3rd, called the St. Francis and left yet another message. She then took some Nembitol sleeping pills and went to bed. Marilyn reported to Jean Carmen early the next morning that she had been disturbed all throughout the night by anonymous telephone calls. It was a woman and she just kept repeating the same words. Leave Bobby alone, you tramp. Leave Bobby alone. The calls didn't stop until 5.30 a.m. Marilyn said she couldn't tell who it was, Carmen said. She didn't think it was Ethel. She said she'd recognize Ethel's voice, but she did think it was somebody Ethel had put up to it. She said the voice did sound kind of familiar but she couldn't place it. Marilyn never did get any sleep that night, obviously freaked out by the calls. So in the early afternoon, she called Jean Carmen and invited her to come over and bring a bag of sleeping pills. She would provide the wine. Quote, We were sleeping pill buddies. But she was busy that day and never went. Oh, but I've forgotten to tell you one little thing. On Sunday, February 5th, 1961, Marilyn was hospitalized. I opened my living room window as wide as I could, and I leaned out. I knew that I had to make up my mind inside the room. If I climbed out onto the ledge, someone would be certain to recognize me, and there'd be a big spectacle. I squeezed my eyes shut at the open window, clenched my fists. I remembered reading somewhere that people who fall from heights lose consciousness before they hit the ground. I looked down. I saw a woman walking along the sidewalk near the building awning, and she was wearing a brown dress. And I knew her. These were Marilyn Monroe's words to her friend, Ralph Roberts. Thankfully, she changed her mind just in time. After her divorce from Arthur Miller, Marilyn had slipped away. She was intensely depressed and had stopped eating or washing her hair. Her psychiatrist, Dr. Chris at the time, became aware of her suicidal thoughts and convinced Marilyn that she needed a break. She knew of a place that she could get some R&R &R and not worry about the stresses of daily life. 
Marilyn had access to a plethora of pills, so the doctor knew that she needed to act immediately. Dr. Chris drove her to Cornell University, New York Hospital. Marilyn checked in under the pseudonym Faye Miller. Marilyn was then led to a wing of the hospital that felt eerily familiar. She had stayed in hospitals over the years, but this didn't look like any of the ones that she had stayed in. This looked like the ones where she had visited her mother. The doors weren't designed to keep people out. These doors kept people in. It was the psychiatric ward. She'd been tricked. She started screaming, crying, and trying to run back out of the building. This unfortunately landed her in a padded cell with only a toilet and barred windows. Later, Marilyn remembered that cell was, quote, for very disturbed, depressed patients. Except I felt I was in some kind of prison for a crime I hadn't committed. The violence and markings still remained on the walls from former patients. She screamed and screamed for someone to let her out, but was only ignored. She felt then, more than ever, that all hope had been lost. She remembered crying so hard that it hurt and banging her fists on the steel door over and over until they were bruised and tender. The staff warned her that if she continued, she would be placed in a straitjacket. And that is just what happened. The next day, she was able to socialize in the lobby with other patients, and one who remembered her described that Marilyn, quote, seemed such a pathetic and vague creature. Later, after returning to her locked cell, Marilyn thought about her acting persona and wondered how she would handle this situation in one of her New York improv classes. She decided she would make the loudest noise she could come up with so that she would be impossible to ignore. Someone would have to come. Maybe it would be someone new, and maybe that person would help her. She picked up the solo chair in the room and threw it at the double-thick glass door that stood between her and the toilet. Nothing happened. She picked it up and threw it again. The glass cracked. A small shard of glass fell on the floor, and as the nurses came bursting into her cell, Marilyn held the glass to her wrist. If you don't let me out of here, I'll kill myself. The nurses were forced to tackle Miss Monroe. Quote, kicking and screaming until she dropped the shard of glass. Then they carried her to the elevator, stretched out and face down, as she fitfully sobbed the entire way, her tears leaving a small trail. Later, psychiatrists and psychologists differed in opinion on Marilyn's diagnosis. Some believe paranoid schizophrenia. Some borderline paranoid schizophrenia. Some, despite the voices Marilyn had been hearing for years, didn't see schizophrenia at all. The doctor at the hospital simply told her, quote, You are a very, very sick girl, and you've been very sick for a very long time. Both Fred Otash and an aide to Bernard Spindle, a surveillance and wiretapping expert, Earl Jaycox, have stated that they listened to some of the tapes made at Monroe's home, including one recorded on the day she died. Quote, Their accounts of what is contained on the tape are remarkably similar. According to James Spada. A third anonymous source who listened to Spindle's tape is quoted in Goddess by Anthony Summers. His version is similar to Otash and Jaycox's reports but his has an added detail. First, the source told Summers, you could hear Marilyn and Kennedy talking. It was kind of echoey and at a distance. Their voices grew louder and louder. They were arguing about something that had been promised by Robert Kennedy. And these recordings, is it of Jack and Marilyn talking over the phone or they're in person? Well, 
first, it's Bobby. And second, in person. Their voices grew louder and louder. They were arguing about something that had been promised by Robert Kennedy. Marilyn was demanding an explanation about why Kennedy was not going to marry her. As they argued, the voices got shriller. Bobby apparently had just learned about Marilyn's own wiretaps and was looking for a recording device or microphone. And he's looking for them at Marilyn's house. At Marilyn's house in person the day that she died. And these are tapes from the surveillance that Fred Otash had planted in Marilyn's house. And multiple people have said that they've heard this tape. At least three. He was asking again and again, where is it? Where the is it? Allegedly, according to Spada, the tape ended with the sound of a door slamming and then resumed with another voice in addition to Marilyn's and Bobby's. Anthony's summer source didn't recognize the voice, but was allegedly told by Spindle that it was Peter Lawford's. Quote, RFK was saying words to the effect, we have to know. It's important to the family. We can make any arrangements you want, but we must find it. Apparently, he was still looking for the recording device. Then, they apparently came close to where the transmitter was. There was a clack, 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 on the tape, which Bernie said he thought was hangers being pushed along a rail. Kennedy was screeching, and Lawford was saying, calm down, calm down. Monroe was screaming at them, ordering them out of the house. Then, according to the source, there were, quote, thumping, bumping noises, then muffled calming sounds. It sounded as though she was being put on the bed. Two other people confirm the existence of this tape. Michael Morrissey, another witness of the tape, was a previous employee of Spindle and later became a Washington lawyer. He claimed he listened to a few minutes of the recording and heard a bang or thump. It might have been someone falling. Bernard Spindle's doctor, Henry Kamen, said Spindle told him about the tape, had described, quote, a violent incident on it and shared with the doctor that he was, quote, very nervous about having it in his possession. Okay, so Spindle is a surveillance expert. One of the first ever. And the FBI used him? A lot. But he wasn't Fred Otash. Correct. He was another leader in the industry. And he's the one who has the tapes. Of Marilyn's last day? Correct. The Monroe tapes. Spindle's tapes? were confiscated during a raid of his home in 1966 by New York District Attorney Frank Hogan's office. Spindle told Life reporter John Neary, quote, Hogan really did Kennedy a favor by pulling the raid. They stole my tapes on Marilyn Monroe and my complete file. And what year is this? 1966. So three years after Jack Jack died died, and four years after Marilyn died, But two Two years years before Bobby Kennedy dies. Okay. Spindle's lawyers sued to get the seized materials back, and in their suit, they listed, quote, a confidential file containing tapes and evidence concerning circumstances surrounding and causes of death of Marilyn Monroe, which strongly suggests that the officially reported circumstances of her death are erroneous. The suit was unsuccessful as was a later suit by Spindle's widow. The FBI states that it destroyed its investigative file on Spindle as was routine, but at least one document still exists. More than half of the document is blacked out, but this remains. Quote, He also said that Senator Bobby Kennedy was present at the time Marilyn Monroe died and blank wanted to get Bobby off his back, blank, could do so by listening to the various recordings and evidence, blank, blank, concerning Bobby Kennedy's presence there at the time. End quote. This is the one document that remains. From Spindle's FBI case. And it has Bobby Kennedy's name written all over it. 
I'd like to say, here and now, that fame is fickle. It had its compensation, but it had its drawbacks. I've had you, fame. So long. Norma Jean Baker. Marilyn Monroe. What has been missing from most of these stories and accounts of Marilyn and the Kennedy brothers is Pat. Patricia Kennedy Lawford. They were at the helm during the most turbulent moment in American history. The rumors are legion. Some sincere, some slander. They gave everything to their country. But what did it look like behind closed doors? In their homes? The most intimate moments of their time on Earth. Sometimes the truth is more wild than the headlines. They seemed to live the easy life, but they lost it all in an instant. They ran faster, worked harder, burned brighter, and then they were gone. You have just listened to The Kennedy Siblings, episode 18 from Blood and Business. Thank you all for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed it, please give us a review on Apple, rate us on Spotify, and share Blood and Business with a friend or a sibling. If you'd like to support the show, the best way is to become a patron of Blood and Business. You will get bonus content every month, including a monthly bonus episode, interactive main episodes, and behind-the-scenes footage. To keep up with us day-to-day, you can follow us at Blood and Business on Instagram and TikTok. You can find the link for Instagram, TikTok, and Patreon in the show notes below. Thank you so much for the support, and we will see you back here next week for your regularly scheduled programming on Blood and Business. The main sources for this episode were The Man Who Kept Marilyn's Secrets by James Spada, The Mystery of Marilyn Monroe, The Unheard Tapes by Anthony Summers. To see a complete list of sources for all Blood and Business episodes, head on over to Patreon for a free PDF download. 